It's one of the nicer tree line blocks in New York, and only 20 minutes from the center of town. Oh, and just around the corner, there's a supermarket and the cleaners. That's Father Harron in 5A. He's blind. Blind? Well, then what does he look at? There is danger everywhere. There is evil, evil everywhere. Turn around, Allison. Look behind you. There is horror. There is darkness. I think Allison may die. But watching, waiting, warding off evil, there is hope. The Sentinel. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Danger Room, the X-Men Comics commentary podcast. I'm Adam. Uh, I'm Jeremy. And we're here this week to discuss X-Men number 14, the November 1965 issue. Yes, uh, and now we're on sale monthly, and uh, Angel has been replaced with that statement. I sure hope he makes it back. (laughs) I guess the demand was very high for the X-Men comic around this time. Based on the letter section, I don't know if you've read the letter section too much. I did this this time. There's a lot of clamoring for much more X-Men, so that's potentially why it went on sale monthly. But I think in the Marvel lore, if we were to look this up... uh, I think most all of the books started off bi-monthly because it was only just a handful of people writing and drawing all of them. And I think by this time, uh, staff has probably grown to the point where, well, they can do a monthly comic book. Yeah, now they've got uh, Stan Lee, Doctor of Story, Jack Kirby, Dean of Layouts, Jay Gavin, Master of Art. I guess that means he's the penciler. Sure. Mm -hmm. V. Coletta B.I., Bachelor of Inking. Mm-hmm. Artie Simek, tired of lettering. At least Artie is honest. <laughs> I got to give him a lot of credit. He's like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want anybody to oversell me anymore. I actually <laughs> hate this job. Everyone, he's like, Stan, can I just write a book? <laughs> no. You must write my words out. Oh, but you're so wordy. I could say the same things with like four or five words. <laughs> You go on and on and on. So, uh, yeah, Among Us, Stalk the Sentinels is the title of this one. And I like the Sentinels. Yes, uh, these are the, the original Sentinels, which I did not realize uh, are slightly different than the Sentinels we know and love, as we will get to. So we uh, we continue almost immediately where we left off last issue with the X-Men recuperating and Jean Grey playing nursemaid to all of them. Which is a weird thing with Cyclops. He's got a little helmet to... Uh, let's see, what does she say? Just another few minutes, Scott. According to the energy, energy register, your Opteray force is almost back to normal. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's at this point that I start thinking that Stan is writing too many books because <laughs> I, I think Scott's eye beams have been called force beams, Opterays, face blasts. I don't know. They just seem, they can't seem to come up with a, a, a concise name for his power. Well, this is new. They've never needed, he's never needed a helmet to recharge his powers before. That's true, but the only reason he needs it is because he almost depleted all of his power by battling the Juggernaut. Well, how does his power work? I mean, I have a couple of questions about his powers in this issue. He's a battery. (laughs) (laughs) He's not really a mutant then if his power doesn't regenerate itself. I don't know. I think in these early issues, they're still trying to figure all of that out. 
I think later on in the series, it's it's revealed that both him and his oh I won't give that part away uh, are uh, get their powers uh, their powers are derived from the sun, like solar energy charges them up. Well, that makes sense. That and that that's that's a good thing. But um, if like he in, in this current issue, he's being charged by this thing, and if he is really worried about his powers, like all the time. Oh, I can't even open my eyes. I will ruin the world with my powers. Then he should just deplete himself. Adam, <laughs> he has a yes. sense of responsibility. And while his okay. powers do frighten him, not only that, the thing that he's hooked up to, it's a big solar concentrator. All right, all right. <laughs> uh, everybody's kind of complaining. Well, not complaining. Beast is complaining. Angel is uh, strung up from the ceiling with some harnesses so that he can exercise his wings. And the Iceman is sitting in an ice intensifier. How many intensifiers does the professor have? (laughs) He's got an intensifier for every situation. (laughs) He's using a clipboard intensifier in the corner. (laughs) That is a big clipboard. (laughs) Mutants, gather around. I've intensified my clipboard with my clipboard intensifier. Ooh. Will this be on the test, professor? (laughs) <laughs> so we get one splash page of the X-Men recuperating and then on the next panel on the next page. Okay, you've all done really good, so you can stop. Pretty much, yep. And we get a little taste of everybody uh, and what they can do with their recuperated power. Well, actually, I guess mostly Beast. Mostly Beast. Yeah. That's it. Beast is the only one that gives us a, a, a display of how he has healed. All right, so Iceman is sitting in his little ice intensifier and he does not want to get out because... He thinks it's the coolest, <laughs> per his joke. If you'll pardon the pun. Yes. But uh, the professor reminds him that if he sits in there too long, he might experience freeze feedback. Which sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I want some freeze feedback, really. I mean, come on. I want to see what happens when Iceman gets a freeze feedback. He in What would happen? He would uh, implode? He would icily implode? Because he blasts his he blasts his ice outward, so a feedback would be the opposite. He sucks it all inward, but still, I just want to see it. It's the vacuum of ice there. Everybody's very excited on the next page because everybody's healed, and the professor delivers wonderful news. Yes, he's got a surprise for them all, and he delivers them the broom that he mentioned. That, oh, wait, no. Oh, wait, no, no. <laughs> In the last episode, he said he was going to give them a broom when he recovered. He takes it back. Mm-hmm. They're all going to go on vacation. Hooray. Meanwhile, across town. We get our introduction of Bolivar Trask. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Bolivar Trask. He's an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, due to that, he he knows that the next fear is not a, a hot war or a cold war, but the greatest menace of all, the mutant kind, weaponized people. And here we begin our... Hatred of the mutants. Uh, we've seen a little bit of dabbling of it before, but this is where it all comes full force. And mm. we get this nice little mutant menace newspaper. And so on the next page, now this is what I uh, commend Marvel for, at least in these early days. Uh, in the letters section, there are various questions such as, how do Cyclops's visor work? Or where does Angel put his wings when he is not in costume? It seems like this page is almost directly like written based on the letters page. And it's so I understand so the first 
three pages are Angel and him tucking his wings back behind him. That's That looks like quite a process. But, hey, okay, so we've got a pseudo-scientific explanation as to where his wings go. Uh, and then the next one, you got Cyclops, and he talks about, every time I shut my eyes, the visor lifts automatically. Which doesn't I make any sense, because, like, <laughs> if he's out in the field and he blinks, like, his his visor goes up, that doesn't make any sense. I guess his his visor goes... No, uh, yeah, I, I didn't like this. Because, the, first of all, the thing is, if he... We saw last issue that if, as he blasts, he can't see through his blasting as the juggernaut was climbing up the hole. I think, though, that that was because it was such a bright, powerful blast he couldn't see beyond it. But, okay, where are you going with this? So while his eyes are under the visor, is he constantly blasting? You know, or does I think this takes a lot of issues before they finally figure it out. Because as the Cyclops that we know today has ruby quartz glasses and, it, right. and so he's got the red glasses and he's got a red visor. I don't believe in any of these we've seen red sunglasses or a red visor. It, now, what does Ruby Quartz do? Does it prevent him somehow from, does it allow him to open his eyes and not blast? I always, I don't know if it's ever been spelled out. And some, some Marvel person out there probably knows the exact Marvel science as to why that is. But I always looked at it as uh, the Ruby Quartz acted like a mirror to his power. So basically, he's always blasting himself in the face. To a certain degree, yes. Uh, And then what you'll also learn later on is that uh, most mutants are unable to harm themselves with their powers or their relatives. But still, he's blasting himself in the face. (laughs) Right. And then but then they also say that the Ruby Quartz holds his power in check, which one could say that the Ruby Quartz just stops his power from occurring in the first place. Yeah, it must be like it must be like kryptonite or something. Now, in the middle, uh, the mid Claremont uh, years, like issue one fifty to two hundred or so, there are many uh, depictions of his visor slightly rising to allow uh, certain amounts of power out. So, if the visor is only up a little bit, only a little bit of power comes out. If it's open really wide, then a ton of power is coming out. So, it's almost as if the opening and closing of the visor is what actually controls the amount of power that he's releasing, which makes sense. And they've alluded to his power being uh, negotiable before, like he's done tiny little beams to uh, clear up Angel's frozen wings <laughs> right. and open like keyholes. And mm-hmm. So he, clearly he has some modicum of control. It looks like they were trying to figure out a way to scientifically explain away how his visor works, and I don't think this explanation satisfies either you or me. Yes, but (laughs) perhaps it satisfied letter writer number five. So, okay, uh, both of those, I understand probably a lot of people having questions about how these two deal with their powers in their normal days and what's the changing sequence look like. But then we get treated to an awkward one of Beast. (laughs) Where he has a special pair of shoes uh, that are very expensive. And I guess the, the front flap on them have hinges? Yeah. Which what I, does that do for him? <laughs> well, that's what I don't understand because as we've seen in previous issues, whenever Beast wants to climb up the side of a wall, he pulls his shoes off and walks up the side of the wall. This little flap here would indicate that, oh, incognito, he could, with his shoes on, climb up the side of a building with his toes. 
Yeah, I don't fully get it. it it's, and he talks about needing breathing space for his feet too. So I don't, I don't get it. it. It just it seems it seems like somebody could have bought some larger shoes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sadly, Iceman and Marvel Girl do not get a concealing of their powers uh, montage. Though I would have enjoyed one of Marvel Girl. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. We got uh, moments later in the outer hall. Mm-hmm. Jean Grey is packed. She's ready to go home. And uh, Scott is creeping around the corner, once again, adjusting his bow tie. <laughs> he really likes that bow tie. And he, he's thinking to himself, here comes Jean. I wonder if I can dare to ask her to. And then Angel comes around the corner and asks her out. Yep. Well, drives her to the airport or the, the train. Yes, because the Angel's chariot is a two-seater natch. I wish we said he's... natch more often. <laughs> I wish that would come back. Well, we're starting it now. The natch. return of natch begins right here. <laughs> okay. Good. Natch. Natch. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, without further ado, the professor, uh, wishes them a fair vacation. They ask what he's going to do and if he's going to go home. And I don't know about you, but I was, I never, never even entered into my mind that this mansion wasn't the professor's home, but. Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I guess. Yeah, not really sure. Not really sure what's going on there. And off the angel and. It is a school, so maybe. I don't know. I guess. Off Gene and uh, uh, Angel drive off, and all of a sudden Angel suspects that there might be something between, well, at yeah, least something with is... Scott and Marvel Girl, but not maybe not the other well, way around. He, he suspected in previous issues that Marvel Girl clearly likes Scott, so this is the first time he's seeing that, oh, maybe Scott likes her too. Mm, he don't care. Meanwhile, the other members are all commenting about how smooth Warren is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the uh, Iceman and Beast, uh, they take off to the city. And Cyclops decides that he wants to be alone despite being invited. Right. But for whatever reason, I don't know. He just wants to walk by himself, I guess. And the professor... he's bummed out. He feels rejected. He's like, oh, I, I'm such a loser. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why can't I ask Jean Grey out? Why can't I have a convertible? <laughs> See? You know, you'd think that the professor would try to take better care of these people. I mean, who's paying these guys anyways? We've established that they've graduated from school, so even if this is like a higher learning high school, we have to assume that these guys are at least 18 or 19 years old, right? That's a good question. Maybe they have side jobs. they got to be paying taxes. Uh, I'm sure the professor probably supplies room and board and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, they need some spending cash. I mean, when they go out to the coffee clutch or wherever they go, I mean, they need some money to buy coffee or hemp or whatever they're doing. Well, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, all right. So off Cyclops goes and the professor sees a uh, uh, frightening reminder of how lonely the professor once was inside <laughs> his little student Cyclops. He carries his loneliness silently, locked inside him, and nothing that anyone can say or do will help. Don't I, of all people, know the pain of such loneliness, the ache that seems unending. It's very dramatic. It's very sad. But no sooner has Cyclops walked away, the professor opens the paper and sees the Mutant Menace article. Yes, and Oliver Trask has gotten uh, a press release out that... Mutants are bad. And the professor... This is apparently a several-page spa- several spread because there's a whole bunch of pictures, like artist drawings of what would happen if the mutants 
looks like a scroll invasion, but <laughs> I guess the mutants in these couple of panels have taken over the Earth and are treating them as slaves and gladiators. You know, I I would like to say that uh, the first panel definitely looks bad. There's like a alien guy who's probably the mutant whipping humans who are hauling blocks and stuff. But that second panel looks pretty utopian-ish. Everything's very clean and curvy and... Yeah. Uh, even the the slaves that are carrying the mutant around on his little chariot, I mean, they're well dressed and well groomed. They're kind of dressed like superheroes. They are all dressed like superheroes. And then you've got a you got an arena there. I mean, there's there's got to be some potential for you know getting a promotion in there somehow. Maybe you know. Actually, they're dressed like '80s joggers. They've got headbands and wristbands and low cut shorts. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And they're in shape. I mean, these guys are cut. So, you know, maybe there is something to, to slavery. <laughs> I mean, you know, slavery to mutants anyways. Yeah. yeah. They, they have a rigorous exercise program. <laughs> Look, you guys are never going to have powers, so start running. And apparently they also have, like, blaster rays. The slaves? Yeah, in the gladiator ring, they're, like, shooting each other with guns that shoot lightning bolts. Yeah, I mean, this is only one artist rendition away from a Civil War uprising. Technology has advanced. Mm-hmm. Under, I mean, that's what mutants bring to you, an advanced yeah. culture and society. And those that can't keep up with it, well, they're swept into the arena and have to fort, fight in gladiator battles. They're awesome guns. I, I would take an awesome gun. And mirror shields or something. So the professor realizes that it may be too late. Now that this message has gotten out there, this is going to potentially create... An anti-mutant fervor. So he gets onto his phone and he calls the vice president of television. Oh, Which no. is awesome. <laughs> no, he calls the National Television Network. Yeah, and he says, basically, I need a television spot now with an interview. I need to, uh, I need to do a debate with Bolivar Trask. Set it up. And they're all like, okay. Well, yes, sir, Mr. Xavier. Right away, sir, Mr. Xavier. We'll get that on. To the next night, <laughs> they preempt. Yeah, basically, I don't care what Bolivar Trask's schedule looks like. You get him on this TV show with me. <laughs> yeah, so the professor either mind-controlled somebody into changing the entire television program schedule or just has that much clout in the uh, scientific environment. Yeah, apparently. It will be a privilege to present a scientist of your stature on our network. Yeah, so he's got clout, you know. He's got ins with the FBI, the television networks. Although on the next page, people are like, who is this guy, this bald guy on television? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the networks know who he is, but the people in the world don't. Yeah, and it's a very interesting um, depiction that I think it's an interesting depiction. So you've got a panel. It reminds me of what's going on today. You know, you've got a panel on some sort of news television. Each one is presenting their points, and the people at home are like, that guy's wacky. Oh, quiet. Yeah. I think he's got something to say. And everybody's very divided on this topic here, and it's it's very interesting. Yeah, this is like a big political issue. Mutants. Now, I got a, Bad for society. I got a question for you. On the third panel of page seven, is this the first utterance of the slang term mutie? Oh, wow, maybe. I think it might be. That's that's cool. So, there you go, folks. The professor's argument, uh, opening argument, is not very impressive. No. He's basically saying, like, we don't understand mutants. So, I don't know. He doesn't really, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't present an it's, argument It's not a so very compelling, as, yeah. 
It's not yeah, very he compelling. Doesn't have, he doesn't have a solution. He just says, "We don't understand mutants, so let's not let's not go crazy." Well, he basically says, "You know, it's fair." He basically says, "Like these are groundless fears. Is a mutant dangerous? Maybe. Will a mutant destroy <laughs> your family? Possibly. Should you run in terror? Absolutely not." Oh, okay. Let me he hear needs, more. He needs to say something like, we need to study mutants. We need to work with the mutants to figure them out. And he doesn't really say that. He just says, don't be stupid. <laughs> hey, you know. Which it's- is impressive. I like this this uh, third panel because he says, you must not let ignorance, rumor, or unreasoning fear stampede you. And mm. the reactions are essentially ignorant and filled with rumor and unreasoning fear. Yes. To which, although, which, what I find really fascinating is that, like, this is like the the time of the '60s. One of them says he he must be one of those right wingers. Yeah, I know. Which I guess I don't know. He, I would think that he was a totally a lefty, but well, you, that's what I'm talking about with the two divisive sides here. You got, and I think maybe Stan is writing this a little uh, um, over the top because one of them is calling him a communist, which I could see. Uh, that being a likely uh, um, critique of a statement such as that. And then the other one calling him a right-winger. I guess I would have to look up what the definition of a right-winger was in the 60s. Yeah, because it's essentially equated with being as bad as a communist. We all know this was a time of, like, the Red Scare or it was coming up. So, like, right-wingers were bad back in the 60s. I, I have... never knew that. <laughs> I have no idea. One guy's really upset for being called ignorant, though. No kid of mine is a mutie. So instead of offering a rebuttal in words, Bolivar Trask stands up and talks into his crazy-looking little walkie-talkie. Yeah, essentially he says, uh, it doesn't matter. This argument doesn't matter because I've already solved the problem. Mm -hmm. And here they are. Good heavens. A large robot. Which uh, we get our first glimpse of a sentinel, which is probably one and a half times the size of a human well i want everybody here to pay attention to the perspective of of the sentinels as the issue proceeds (laughs) so for those of you following along at home and your originals omnibuses or ipads or whatever you've got in the very first introduction panel he is about twice as tall as the professor is when the professor is sitting down i would say that the professor sitting down is probably three and a half four feet off the ground, which would make the Sentinel about eight feet tall. Right. But in the third panel, he's the Sentinels are now clearly twice as Bolivar Trask as Bolivar Trask is standing up. And he's not rendered as a short guy. We could probably call him about 5'8", which makes these guys about 11 feet tall. They... They revolt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bolivar Trask wants to make an example and show... Uh, everybody that these robots are perfectly under his control and he will solve the mutant problem when the Sentinel blasts him. Well, okay, you're skipping ahead a little bit. I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, The Bolivar Trask first kind of suggests that Professor X might be, might have an ulterior motive in his defense of mutants. which is correct. Which is that fear and unreasoning, which is kind of a nice touch. Mm -hmm. And then he has one of the Sentinels grab Professor X Mm-hmm. and uh, withhold him as though he was a mutant. And here the professor attempts to use his mental power against the Sentinel, but can't because he has a mechanical brain. Uh, the professor doesn't realize that he's right next to the human who is controlling the 
sentinels and <laughs> stop him. But, you know, maybe he's shocked and surprised. Could be, yeah. And then um, and then the whole thing backfires, as you said, with Bolivar Trask and uh, the, the sentinels kind of take over. Their brain is superior. Their strength is superior. We serve no one. Those are all very important observations that I'm glad you made. Because <laughs> um, I totally missed out on the fact that he could have totally, <laughs> hey, Bolivar, mind wipe. Oh, Sentinels, go away. <laughs> nope. But then the professor reasons it out pretty quickly that he was an anthropologist and not a robotics expert. He must have made a mistake. Yep. So... I don't want to give. Uh, I don't know if it's spoilers at this point, but the the ex the 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 um, sentinels of the future seem to have mutant detecting algorithms built into their systems, and I thought at some point they either had mutant inhibiting or power inhibitors or something like that. Neither of which do they seem to have here. Not in this part of the issue, but later. Later, we'll point out some. Oh, okay. I must have missed something because. Okay, anyways, I must have missed something because at this point, I mean, the Sentinels should be like, warning, warning, the professor, warning, warning, exterminate. But, you know, they're not. Yeah, that's that's clearly. uh, Yeah. Okay, so. It's not appropriate right now for this because they need to keep Professor. Let's say that um, they said that, but the professor mind wiped everybody. Ah, okay. Sure. I, I could, that'll, I that'll guess explain I could. it away. The Sentinels mean I like, why aren't you listening to us? He's a mutant. <laughs> Mind wipe. No, he's a mutant for the love of God. We must destroy him. Bolivar, give us the order. Mind wipe. <laughs> the professor's got his act uh, cut out for him. <laughs> uh, so then we fast forward to that crazy, crazy coffee clutch. Oh, you're jumping ahead again. The oh, professor calls the X-Men to come, come help him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty important. Yes. Well, I was. I guess he, there's no mutant power inhibitors going on here. So yes, you're right. The professor blasts out a follow my impulses. One other thing we missed that I wanted to comment on is earlier when the X Men asked, "Well, what what will happen if there's an emergency? What will you do?" The professor says, or somebody says, "Oh, he he has got the strongest brain on the planet. He'll just reach out and talk to us mentally." But I know that in previous issues we've decided or it's been discussed that. He only has a limited range, or I don't quite get it. Well, you know, just to be sure of things, before the professor went on the talk show, he he battery-powered himself with the Mento Ray. Okay. The Intensifier Mento Ray. He was, okay, (laughs) just like last issue or the Juggernaut issue where he's spewing his brain power across the city. There's no reason to show us that every single issue, but we can just assume that he always does that. Or maybe he just has a really like intense connection with the X Men. Well, see now he's th- been training with them for so long, and you know he has a he has a very close connection to their brainwave patterns or something. See now that I could buy because in later issues, much much later issues, it's established that uh, or it's it's discussed that uh, the professor and then later on other telepaths can develop uh, psychic links between the entire team members. So no matter where they are, they'll always be in psychic rapport with one another. Yeah, we'll just go with that. I mean, we okay. have to assume that that that's got to be it. It's got to be. It doesn't say it on the page. I know. I know. <laughs> All right. So let's go to this crazy club scene here. Um, the coffee a go go, where yep. uh, Beast and Iceman have returned. Yeah, they like it there. 
Iceman is flirting with Zelda once yep. again. Mm-hmm. Pretty uh, hot stuff. He asks her out on a date. I don't, I don't know why Beast keeps coming here, because he clearly doesn't seem to be enjoying himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess uh, he's just trying to be a wingman for Bobby. Ah, that could be. The, uh, the poet... Oh, hey, Beast, can we go check out that Zelda chick again? Oh, for the love of God, Bobby. <laughs> so the poet is belting out some hip beats or something, and I like this. I don't know how this flew with the comics code, but this girl's like, Say it again, Bernard. Those tender sentiments do wonders for my libido. <laughs> and then the bongo dude's like, Cool, the chick, you're melting my bongos. There's a lot of sexual energy between those three people right now. Uh, you know, it's not like the comics code ever read these things. I guess, but I don't know, man. If I <laughs> were a parent, and I was like, libido. Oh my gosh, Bobby. Yeah, is it, kids don't kids don't get that. Oh come on, it's nineteen sixty five. There's nothing else to do. You're not gonna be like, what the hell does libido mean? And go look it up. <gasps> oh my gosh, <laughs> there weren't dictionaries in the sixties. <laughs> oh, okay, those were an invention <laughs> of the seventies. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So Iceman works up the nerve to ask Zelda out on a date, but unfortunately the professor interrupts them. Which is weird. She she basically says, I'll think about it, and then he says, I have to cancel on you. And then she says, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she didn't say yes. What's her problem? Uh, she's playing hard to get. I guess so. She but now w- she won't date him no matter what. Ah, she's just saying that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we'll see her again. Maybe, I don't know. So Beast and the Angel, they jump out into an alleyway and change into their costumes. We're treated to a lot of dialogue about what a pain it is to change or something. I don't Superman know. reference? There was, where, uh, yes, there's a Superman reference. Phone booth seems to be the preferred place to change your superhero into your superhero costume. And that's funny. I, yeah. Iceman pulls out his booties. He yes. calls them booties. <laughs> Uh, he's probably just upset that the professor makes him wear booties. I mean, there's, there's really, he's covered in ice from head to toe. There's really no reason for him to wear little booties. I don't know. I think he likes them. He calls them his soft little booties. Yeah, maybe his feet get cold. <laughs> so he, he makes himself an ice slide. And this is a question that I've asked uh, many times where I've said, how come he doesn't run out of ice? And here we're treated to a, what happens if you run out of ice? And Nice Man says, I don't know, we're just going to crash a lot quicker, I guess. <laughs> Basically, if I run out of, out of ice, we die. So, I mean, oh. <laughs> I have to imagine that there must have been letters to the letters column saying, how much ice can this guy actually make? Because they're actually kind of addressing the fact that there may be a limit to how much ice he can generate at any given time. Or maybe Stan Lee and, and the crew are starting to realize how nerdy comic book fans are, and they're starting to preemptively guess what they're going to ask. Ah, that could be. Now, my question here is, if you look at all these ice slides, I want to know how they're suspended. Because <laughs> There's look, always that question. They look like they're floating. They go over, they're going over buildings, though, so they must like somehow use buildings as like, all right. stability. Warren Worthington is at his, uh, what probably is some mansion, eating dinner with the butler and his parents. Yep. When he gets his condition red call from the professor. And he does. He makes a very pathetic excuse to get away. Uh, I just remembered something uh, vitally important and leaves. <laughs> and but he's got such great parents that they're just like we understand and we trust you. 
I feel like the professor, I'm not the professor, I feel like, well, Stanley, the professor of the X-Men. I feel like Stanley was really trying to show how the professor's calls interrupts uh, the X-Men's lives. So we get that whole page of uh, Beast and Iceman being interrupted from their their date or their coffee club or whatever. Uh, and that's kind of like, okay, well, that's interfering with their life. But then you get to this scene and there's nothing really like, the, the parents aren't even like, but Warren, you just got here and we haven't seen you for months and we miss you and tell us all about what's going on. They're just like, all right, son, you know what's best. Get on out of here. Yeah. And, um, then, and then they don't even try for Cyclops, but that's jumping ahead. So, but anyways. <laughs> well, we don't even see Jean Grey. Yeah, Jean Grey is, we don't even, she must be on the train because that's, I think, where Warren took her. Yeah. So, so we could, we could, we could see uh, Warren's parents, though, which is nice. I guess. I mean, you know, we're getting some character background. Furthering Angel's character, we got some earlier where he talks about his father and his army training. Now we're getting some. We get to we get to meet his father and see that he's rich. He really is this rich guy that he's always talking about. Okay, so if there's any ever any doubt, and we thought that Angel was just a liar, yeah. put that to rest. Okay, so. We move on to the Sentinels are now having a conversation with each other. They say, uh, we were created in the second panel on page 11. We were created to be the guardians of mankind. And to guard them properly, we must rule them completely. Oh, sure. I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it would certainly make things easier, right? You don't have to deal with laws and other things that would prevent you maybe from protecting somebody. I like it. It shows that the Sentinels have uh, started thinking for themselves and they're going for the most easiest solution. They're right. not exactly right, but they're thinking for themselves. Well, I mean, if you're given uh, one command without any sort of parameters, it's kind of like RoboCop, right? RoboCop was to protect and serve, but he had like the three, uh, whatever they were called, like he couldn't harm innocent people. Directives. The directives, his, his three directives. So it appears that the Sentinels were not getting, given any directives, just an objective. And they came to the only logical conclusion was, well, if they're going to make laws and stuff, we, we just got to rule them, and then we'll make up our own rules, and then we'll be able to protect them. That makes sense yeah. to me. It does. Uh, so the professor uh, is somehow able to maintain a mental control over everybody to keep them in a state of tranquility. Yep. Which and, makes uh, That's a power yeah, I smart. can buy. I can buy that. Uh, the Sentinels take off with Bolivar Trask. They're going back to their, uh, I guess, Hideout. headquarters. Yeah. Hideout. Okay. Hideout. Club, clubhouse. <laughs> Sentinel Clubhouse. <laughs> it's a Saturday morning show in the sixties. <laughs> uh, somebody escapes the professor's. Like the professor's having trouble controlling all of the people because there's so many of them in the studio. Sure. One of them escapes, and a sentinel tries to blast him. Mm-hmm. The professor knocks him out with a mental force bolt, or knocks him down. I guess. I have a problem with this. Actually, he misses. He like blasts above him, but a mental—that's well, the, that's the sentinel blast. Oh, the the wit is the sentinel blast. Yeah, exactly. The sentinel blasts at him, trying to kill him. The professor uses his mental force bolt and knocks him over, which causes him causes the blast to miss him. Okay, you're right. You're right. I thought that his mental force bolt was actually that red blast ray but you're right it says right there the sentinel unleashes a powerful blast ray all right then cool i thought that at first too 
because I was going to complain, but now I've got nothing to complain about. All right, so then income, yes. <laughs> income <Adam> one, <laughs> income the beast and Iceman. Yep. Uh, let's see. What do they do? Uh, the beast jumps and kicks at one of the sentinels' heads. I guess there's only there's only one sentinel left. Oh, All the sentinels left except for three R. I would like to point out now that the sentinels seem to also have grown in size yet again. Because if we look at the first panel here on page twelve, uh, Beast's perspective to is now about the size of uh, maybe the sentinel's entire torso. Oh yeah. Huh. So they have, and if you look at the people in the background, the people in the background don't even they come up above just above the sentinel's knee. Yeah. Putting the yeah. sentinel at about sixteen feet tall now. Oh, well. And if you continue, so Beast does some uh, acrobatics and stuff, but if you continue now to look at pa- panel three... I Ice... would like to jump in and point out that Beast destroys a lot of television equipment. <laughs> he does, with his crazy antics. <laughs> Even one of them makes a sound effect that says, zit. Well, that's the sentinel again. I know, I just zit. You can't blame Beast for that. I know, but zit. <laughs> zit. Okay, okay, fair enough. So pan, panel three, uh, Iceman is now the size of the Sentinel's boot. Which, yeah, wow. <laughs> which would put the Sentinel at about, I don't know, 30 feet tall? I totally did not notice any of this as I was reading it. <laughs> I think there's more uh, as we continue <laughs> on through the comic book. But uh, Iceman skates around. Uh, they, yep, he knocks the Sentinel on his ass. Uh, the they haven't yet discovered that the sentinel has a chesto ray or something like that because they turn their back on the sentinel, and professor tries to warn him, but it's too late. Iceman is shot with a heat ray. Yeah, zap. We cut across a few blocks away to Cyclops in the back of a taxi, saying, "Faster, driver!" And then, uh, so the the driver's. Turns a corner really fast, and Cyclops' glasses fall off, and he blasts a hole into the taxi. You would think that he would get like some, you know, those goofy glass holder things that you have on the back of your head if you're playing sports. Because I mean, come on, I don't know how. If, I don't wear glasses, but I wear sunglasses, and I know the sunglasses get knocked off from time to time. I mean, it seems like you'd be a little bit more careful about that. The taxi driver pulls over and starts yelling about how anybody who needs specs to keep to stop his eyes from blasting must hey. be a mutant. Muty. He says absolutely, yeah, yeah, muty. He says absolutely nothing about the fact that his taxi was just destroyed. <laughs> yeah, he's in shock. <laughs> he almost got his head taken off by some guy with his opti ray. I can see why he's mad. I would be mad too. Uh. Regardless of whether he was a mutant. So an angry mob gathers because they want to, uh, I don't know, they want to chase the muty. Oh, hey, look, panel two, mm-hmm. uh, page 13. Ah, Cyclops zit. is zit. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently that's the opti-ray sound effect for anybody who's got an opti-ray. Yeah. Zit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he, uh, so somebody says, uh, he tried to kill the cab driver by looking at him. He's got death-dealing eyes, which apparently was the phrase that scared everybody, and so Cyclops got away. I like that Cyclops calls them an unreasoning mob here. That's like a thread that they keep coming back to. Well, they are. Yeah, yeah. they definitely are. Uh, I so, like it. 
So what I like here is he gets around the corner and he tears his jacket off and reveals his entire costume. <laughs> it's a very odd transition. Yeah, I noticed that. Like, there's a lot of panels missing here. <laughs> like, how did his helmet get on? Or I mean, his goggles and his cowl or whatever you call it, his hood. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But yeah, we there's a panel missing where where there's a, several panels missing where he takes off his shoes, takes off his pants, <laughs> puts on his helmet, puts on his visor. And then pulls off his jacket. I think the amazing feat of engineering here is that he had his costume completely concealed within his suit there. He's prepared. Yeah, including those boots. And those are not small boots. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so then... Uh, Ten minutes later, he's in his costume. <laughs> yeah. Cyclops races to the top of the stairs and... Uh, Beast saves his life by telling him, Don't come into the room! And the Sentinel smashes down on the ground. I would like to point out the perspective here that Cyclops is now as big as the the Sentinel's forearm. <laughs> I don't even know how tall that would make him. Uh, yeah, he, he's a big one. <laughs> uh, Cyclops then calls for a, this is fine, he calls for a duo smash. Operation duo smash. And Operation duo smash is something I can get behind more than maneuver G5 or whatever. Uh, but... Uh, Basically, he's he tells Beast to do his battering ram attack, and uh, Cyclops is going to do his ray blast. And then this is really confusing because Beast basically knows that this isn't going to work. He says so, mm-hmm. but he says, I'm just going to let you figure out for yourself that this isn't going to work and do as you say. And then the Sentinel dodges and Beast rams into a wall and knocks himself <laughs> unconscious. Well, I think he deserves that for not, hey, Cyclops, come on, I've already tried this. I mean, he knows for a fact that this maneuver is not going to work, yet he puts so much effort into the maneuver that he knocks himself unconscious. And he's supposed to be the smart one. <laughs> now, the other thing here is on the fourth panel, the Sentinel is now twice as large as Cyclops. They they shrunk back down. <laughs> so uh, whatever power, I guess the only power they have is to uh, uh, confusingly change sizes. <laughs> Cyclops destroys more equipment in the television studio. Yes. Uh, Beast falls to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's been, it took, took a long time, but Beast did finally fall to the ground and he's unconscious. Um, the professor alerts Cyclops to the fact that the Sentinel has a hidden chest ray, and don't turn your back on him. And then, very luckily, as Cyclops is confused about what he's going to do next, the uh, Sentinel falls unconscious. Well, not unconscious. It's a robot. It's a robot, Adam. He he falls down uh, inactive, I guess. Yes. He stops and falls. Uh, the X-Men and the Professor are all very confused as to what happened. The Professor releases his tranquility hold on the studio. Iceman wakes up from being zapped mm-hmm. or zitted. <laughs> the Professor plays it all like, oh, we're safe. The X-Men are here now. Hooray. And then he yep. orders them silently to get all the people out of the room so they can continue making plans. Which is, why didn't he just order them all to silently leave the room? I mean, he has control over the people in the room. Well, I mean, the ex, uh, the, the Sentinels might have blasted him because they thought yeah. they were, It makes sense that he would have just like, all right, just, just, just chill. Because you saw the one guy that tried to run away. They blasted him right away. Or, you know, oh, I just mean like, okay, he, he can just tell them all, I need you all. Like, he can oh. tell them all mentally, you should all leave the room now. 
he was so exhausted from the tranquility yeah. hold that he's like, oh, I would tell these people to do something, but I just can't. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figured. Uh, so meanwhile, Angel, uh, who I, I had forgotten about, is flying above the city, trying desperately to get to the studio, I guess. Yep, he's on his way to, to the, the city, or to the studio, rather, and uh, he sees all the Sentinels. And then the Sentinels discover him, and here's where we see that the Sentinels do uh, recognize mutants. Halt your flight, my computometer registers mutant ahead. Attack oh, in yeah. force. yeah, I missed that line. His computometer. <laughs> <laughs> I Stan didn't take a second to open up an encyclopedia and come up with a word that made sense. <laughs> Opti rays and computometers. All right, and anyway. they all start blasting at angels. Zits, 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 zits everywhere. The zits are flying everywhere. It's amazing. It's uh, like being attacked by a squadron of human torches, says Angel. Yes, that's hilarious. Uh, but for whatever reason, what happens here? The Sentinels uh, a- assume solo attack posture, I guess, so that they can, rather than being a team, just uh, blast uncontrollably at the Angel. Yeah, he dodges all their blasts, so they say, let's split up. Three of you guys stay back doing solo attack posture. The rest mm-hmm. of us, we're going home. Yep. All others remain in formation. Proceed to destination. That is all. Sentinel 6, 7, and 8 are assume solo attack posture. Attack. All others remain in formation. Proceed to destination. That is all. Angel keeps on dodging and then suddenly gets sucked away from the Sentinels down to a train. He doesn't understand why. It's like he's being uh, magnetized towards the train. Is Magneto back? I don't know. <laughs> the For sen- whatever reason, the Sentinels go away now. Uh, I guess they got far enough away that they were like, eh, he's not a threat. Computometer doesn't away. have a very good range. Yeah. So, yeah, the Angel or the Angels, the Sentinels all, uh, uh, they go home. Uh, and we get treated to, uh, unfortunately, only the Mar- only Marvel Girl putting a boot on. So clearly <laughs> she has done all the good stuff prior to us entering the panel. We'll we'll have to assume that the professor's mento con, like uh, call got to her pretty late because otherwise she's been changing this whole time. Well, here's here's my theory. She's, I mean, maybe she had to put on makeup and do her hair. I guess that makes sense. She's on a train and the train is moving at seventy miles per hour. How fast is the professor's mind control going, and where is it actually being directed towards? Yeah, well, maybe it took a while to catch up to her. My theory is that it just hit the car behind her, and and uh, and some guy's like, "Oh my God, some guy called the <laughs> professor is in trouble. We got to get to him." And his wife's like, "Harry, sit down." What? <laughs> but uh, Marvel Girl saw the Sentinel. She's like, "Ah, she's. I better get in my Marvel Girl suit. Who knows what's going to happen next?" Oh yeah, she didn't even get the professor's. <laughs> I, don't I just think realized so. <laughs> that the professor didn't. He either didn't bother connecting to her or. Yeah, wow. In the back of his mind, he's like, should I call the girl? Nah. <laughs> so she, uh, I think, I'm not, is this the first taste we get of her um, levitating herself? Well, they make such a big deal out of it that it, it kind of must be. She I, levitates herself out of the train and, and out of the window and gets on top of the train. Yeah, we, She's been practicing this feat for months. Yeah, we get a uh, we get a thought bubble, and we also get a uh, narration bit about how powerful her levitation is. So, I think it must be uh, the first time she's levitated herself. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and then 
uh, Angel realizes that it was Gene that pulled him down towards the car, and he's very happy to see... I should have guessed. Hey, you pretty girl. But I was worried that it was Magneto. And she's Although, like... Oh, no, wait. No, Magneto doesn't make any sense, because there's... Unless he was pulling Angel's belt down or something. <laughs> I, I was only kidding about the Magneto thing. I was pulled down by my belt buckle! <laughs> it really, really Magneto. hurt. Um... So uh, we are rejoined with the um, Iceman, Professor, Beast, and Cyclops who are standing above the fallen Sentinel. Trying to figure out exactly what's, like, why the, you know, the this mutant killing machine, the Sentinel, fell over. And the professor um, heard it mutter something that sounded like Master Mold. Ooh, Master Mold. Nobody knows what that is, and, well, they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. But then the professor says, be quiet, everybody clear your minds of any thought. I'm picking <laughs> something up. And he receives a vague mental impulse from the robot. Yeah. <laughs> the thought is so strong that I can read it, even though it doesn't emanate from a human brain. I don't care that there's a little bit of dialogue explaining that away because it makes no sense. It's a robot. It doesn't yeah. have a brain. It has programs and instructions. What would have made more sense is if Beast were to open up maybe like a computer hatch door and be like, oh, look at this. I just found the return to home instruction coordinates. Or if Angel followed them back to their headquarters. Oh, and then like... called out for the professor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that actually would have been the best of the three uh, possibilities, I think. But but no, the professor hears the robot's vague, faint mental emanations. Whatever. Stan Lee was just trying to get to the end of this issue. <laughs> I only have two pages to go. How, how can I turn this thing over? Uh, just in the nick of time, I guess, or something, uh, Jean Grey and Angel show up. And Angel actually says, if I fly ahead, I can still find some trace of where they went. But then the professor's like, oh, that won't be necessary. That only makes sense. <laughs> Don't trouble yourself, boy. I know exactly where they are. I read the robot's mind. Now let's go. Within the hour. <laughs> I think the professor is just a crazy old man who got lucky a lot. <laughs> I don't even think he has mental powers. I think when he was uh, putting everybody in their uh, like uh, their tranquility state, I think they were all just scared. Uh, they were just shocked. He's like, oh, I am controlling. I am a mutant, darn it. This go back, goes back to our theory that the professor is just a scared old man. <laughs> yes, I agree. So we fast forward to the uh, Sentinel's base where they're carrying Bolivar Trask. And once again... If you look at the scale, the Sentinels only look about twice as tall as Bolivar Trask. Maybe it's the humans that are getting larger and smaller. Well, that could be. And the environment, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sentinels are only constant. Uh, so they go into the Forbidden Vault or whatever, where there's like this machine that kind of looks like an atom factory or something. I don't know what's going on here. The Master Chamber, where... Yeah, I don't know. For for a for an anthropologist who is not a roboticist, he's pretty smart. He's got a lot of gear here. I, I would actually be curious how he made all of his money and and who who was the contractor that helped him put all this together? Um, Jack Kirby. No, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so then we get a uh, an alert and someone's approaching, and rather than using their computer meters or whatever, they say, "Oh, it's a human occupied vehicle." Yeah. Rather than be like, oh my gosh, mutants. Our prime directive is to destroy the mutants. 
Well, to be fair, they they know that it's the ones that they saw before. Yeah. Um, and clearly in this image, they can't make them out. Yeah. All right, fine. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so the X-Men get out of the car uh, and... You know, if we're trying to keep the professor with a low profile, it doesn't make any sense that they grab him and his wheelchair and put him all together and put him in the wheelchair and get him up with the team. But they do. This whole last page uh, is kind of ridiculous because basically they get there. The professor knows that the Sentinel headquarters is somewhere around in this field. But nobody uh, believes them because it's nothing but crabgrass. Yeah, there's a hill with a bunch of bushes on it and... I don't know if the if the Sentinels chose not to reveal themselves, the X Men would never find them. Right, and but for whatever reason, the Sentinels decide to reveal themselves by opening up the fortified structure of a base that is below the crab grass. The entire hill seems to rise from the ground on thick piston legs, revealing a monstrous fortress beneath. Yeah, and it starts blasting at them. It does start. How shooting do we at fight them? that? Shouts Angel. I don't know. The entire terrain was a false cover, and it's firing at us. Oh, my gosh. And so then we get the sensational news that there's been such a demand that this issue will now, this title will now be uh, monthly. Oh, and by the way, this is the end of the issue. <laughs> yeah, we don't even get a to be continued. This is just the end. Actually, yeah, it literally says the end, so one could infer that you know next week they might be fighting Magneto again. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine if they went from this cliffhanger to like, oh, here's here's another issue with Kazar. Kesar. <laughs> Kesar, <K> sorry. <laughs> also, so another thing I wanted to hit up here uh, in this letter section, um the first letter, which is really the only letter I read, is uh the guy talking about your covers are awful. You should stop talking about how wonderful you are. It's getting annoying. And I have to say that in the last few issues I've noticed that there's been a lot less the greatest magazine you've ever read with the most sensational action you've ever seen. So I, I like that. I, I love these letters because they're all so picky, 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 picky. But I love the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show that comic book fans have never changed. Exactly. <laughs> but in panel three of issue six, it clearly shows the blob has something or other. No, I don't know. Purple shorts. Yes. Um. Yeah, which is why I would like to go back and interview all these people. Well, not go back, but find all these people. You could make an excellent documentary. It could be like a weekly uh, video blog or something where you interview Mike Lisa Gore. If Mike Lisa Gore is still alive. Yeah, a lot of these people wouldn't be alive. John <laughs> Baca. Well, basically, we could only interview the people. Not that we're ever going to do this. Don't get your hopes up, folks. Uh, <laughs> But you're welcome to take this idea and run with it. I'm going to put we, it we, out there that if uh, an old person who wrote to the X-Men comic in the 60s is out there and is listening, I would interview you. Yeah, we will do an interview episode. That would be excellent. That would be awesome. Um, and it has all of their addresses here. So we could actually go to all these addresses <laughs> and ask if like 749 East 231st Street. We'll go to their we door and be like, there. is Norman Rubin there? He's <laughs> like, this is he, and like, you loser, you still live here? <laughs> what? Yeah, but there, I don't know, maybe, yeah, it's it's highly unlikely, but there'd be one person. Or, oh, he's still in his basement, just like he was 40 years ago, still <laughs> reading his comic books. You see JLA1, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, I, 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 um, 
as much fun as we may have made in this issue, uh, I like the overall turning uh, of the X-Men into less of a happy, campy, that's a new bad guy a month type thing towards a changing the uh, perception, the surrounding perception of mutants. Because I think that creates uh, just... I don't know, more more of an arc of storytelling. So you're not just fighting villains. You're also fighting uh, a society who who believes that you don't want anything to do but to destroy the world because you've got these powers that you don't understand. Yeah, honestly, this was I thought this was a great issue. Um, we we make fun of the X-Men because it's old and silly, but we love it. You know, it's not it's not like we're not we're being critical, but, you know, Hopefully our love for the X-Men and, and all of this stuff comes through. Right. But yeah, this was, a, I thought we're definitely, we're definitely getting somewhere with the X-Men and this was a, this was a great issue. A lot, a lot of, a lot of silliness aside, uh, things are really starting to move together and we've got Sentinels, which seem to be like they're a really interesting foe and yeah, the, the magazines just, or the comics getting more thoughtful, I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, stay with us, folks, because hopefully it continues down this road. And if it doesn't, well, then maybe it'll just be more fun for us to have. Yeah, I mean, no matter what, we're going to continue to make fun of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget to visit us. Visit us. Don't forget. So don't forget to visit us at www.redcatproductions.com forward slash danger room, or on the Facebook page, which is what facebook.com forward slash danger room podcast. Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. We got our own little clean URL. That's sweet. You yeah, should go join exciting. it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you can listen to the podcast there. You can listen mm-hmm. to the podcast at the aforementioned redcapproductions.com slash danger room. You can listen to the podcast on iTunes where uh, you could leave us a nifty review, which will help other people find the show. Or you can just introduce the show to other people, mm-hmm. which would be great. And you can send us an email over at uh, DangerRoom at RedCatProductions.com. Yeah, we're dying to hear from you guys. If there, if anybody's out there, you know, it'd be great to hear from you. Is this thing on? <laughs> <laughs> there, we just we just have quiet fans. Yes, yes. But there's legions of them. Yes, legions of com. They're just waiting for us to slip up with some detail. They're like, oh, no, 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 Jeremy, that's <laughs> not the right detail. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, with that said... Uh, until next time, the danger room is closed. The Sentinel. The most frightening motion picture experience of your life. And the most revealing. Turn around. Look behind you. Be one with us. There is evil everywhere. And the Sentinel is the only hope. The Sentinel. <laughs>